Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode, and happy new year. This episode is going to come out as the first episode, most likely in 2023. Uh, I record episodes in advance, so it is not 2023 yet, but it, and it feels very weird to say that, but I um, am really, really excited about this conversation, and honestly, I'm really excited about the future direction of the podcast and, and some of the things that we have coming up for you. And I wanted to share a little bit about that just so you as a listener know what to expect and also invite your feedback as we go because I want this to be a collaborative process and that's something that I'm also really excited about. Um, If you've been listening for a while, you know that I took a break over the summer and I've slowed down so episodes come out every other week now instead of weekly. And I've been really trying to be intentional about what Um, content am I trying to bring? Why? And so I want to give you kind of a heads up about that. But uh, first, a really quick, I guess, little disclaimer about the language in this episode, but it actually relates to the direction of this podcast. So really, if you've um, listened to my prior episodes, you know that I like and resonate with so much of the health at every size movement. And also, the intuitive eating. Intuitive eating was incredibly useful for me. And also one of the things that I see as perhaps a missed opportunity or a gap is the intersection with the people in the weight inclusive health at every size um, against fat phobia camp, I suppose, and this gap between the weight management worlds and the idea about you know, weight loss and weight management and language that we use around anything from pursuing wanting weight loss to pursuing things like weight loss medications or surgery, there can accidentally be a lot of shame that people feel when they're feeling a little bit torn between these two worlds. And one of the things that I believe is that not to be too kumbaya, but I think we can work much more effectively if we work together and we are not so polarized. I think everyone can agree that we are incredibly polarized in a number of ways in our lives and it's really, really unhelpful. And so I have some, I've been doing a lot of reflecting on this and I have some, I think some exciting things in the pipeline, things that I'm learning, frameworks that I'm learning that I think will be really helpful as we navigate these issues as individuals, but also as we navigate these types of conversations, whether it's on this podcast or with a healthcare provider or with a family member. So, and um, funny behind the scenes, I just realized I put on my headset for this and it's not plugged in. I do this all the time. So I'm going to take off my headset. Hopefully the sound on this audio is okay. If it's not great, I apologize. So, and I wanted to also, um, before I dive in with what this episode is going to include, I want to give you a little background insider scoop into some of the things that 
I've been working on behind the scenes. Um, I've been working to improve some things in my individual therapy practice of how I work with people. I'm doing some continuing education, particularly in the internal family systems model for individual therapy. It sounds like a family therapy, but it's actually not. And it's a therapy that has a really very unique in some ways, in many ways actually, and, and very cool way of approaching trauma, whether that's big T trauma, um, you know, overt trauma, like forms of abuse or what we call little T trauma or painful experiences, which would apply very much to this discussion today about internalized weight bias. So this, I will be talking more about this moving forward, but I want to be talking, um, and, and I want you to be realizing that as we think about internalized weight bias, not necessarily as something that is you or that you've done or that is bad and that you need to get rid of, but as simply a part of you that has developed internalized weight bias thoughts and beliefs and emotions. Because one of the ways that can be really effective and that I'm finding really effective for myself and a lot of people is that if we can understand these parts of ourselves and what they are trying to do for us and then work with that part and even appreciate that part of ourselves against instead of against it can be a really effective way to heal and move forward in our life. So for most of us, maybe all um, internalized weight bias to whatever extent we may have it is likely trying to protect us from something. And that's going to be perhaps different, different based on who you are. But um, I will have more coming out about that and the intersection between that model and how it can really help um, you heal um, in, in a variety of ways. So I'm, I'm really excited about it, as you can tell. So I'm going to tell you in a bit um, what to expect in this interview, but um, just really quick, a, an ask from me. If you're liking this podcast, our downloads are really um, taking off. They're really growing, even despite our break and reduced frequency. So if you've been listening or if you love today's episode, please leave a podcast review. Um, it just takes a few moments. You can just give it a, um, a star review or you can write a review. Both are super appreciated. Um, if, especially if you're loving this middle ground, shame-free, focused on learning, kind of honest conversation approach, I'd love to know it. And I'd also love to know um, what you want to learn more about. So please um, take a moment. You can even just as you're listening, open up the uh, Apple podcast app on your phone and and find the, the podcast and you can do that now. It's like a it's like a tip jar for me and it's free for you to do. So I would greatly appreciate that. So. All right. So moving on to what to expect in this interview. So I sat down and well over Zoom and talked to Dr. Robin Pashby. Dr. Pashby is a clinical psychologist. She and I have fairly similar interests and training, and um, she is actually someone who multiple people that I know know her and had said, you need to talk to her. So I was very, very excited to do that and very, um, I would say, just like uplifted and encouraged by this conversation in many ways. And so we talk a lot about a lot of things. We talk about why she uses the term, she does use the term obesity or persons with obesity, and she does this incredibly intentional, intentionally. And she talks about her own personal experience and how this is brief. She talks about that briefly and how that's influenced, but really how it's um, something that she does based on talking with people and what they find empowering and how this can actually help reduce shame help people feel more seen. And, and although this is individual, um, I think that's really a probably slightly different take. I've talked about on this podcast, how I, and you'll notice I rarely use that term. Um, but it's got me, it's got the wheels turning. And I think as all of these topics are, it is nuanced, but, um, I think you'll be interested to hear her take. Then we talk about what is weight bias what is internalized weight bias, including a surprising statistic about what countries you will find it in. We talk about how to know if you have internalized weight bias, and we talk about the impact of internalized weight bias, and both on our psychology, our emotional well-being, and our biology. 
often without your awareness, it impacts us. And how most of us are not totally immune from it, but it will vary to what extent it's impacting you. Um, I thought it was really interesting, given my also deep dive into more trauma-focused approaches that Dr. Pashby mentioned, a trauma-informed approach is really important for most people when you're dealing with an eating-related or weight concern, and she talks about why that is. We talk about what you can do about uh, internalized weight bias, both from an individual standpoint and what else you can do in the larger community. And um, yeah, like I said, I think this is a really super cool conversation. I know I'm biased, but um, I really enjoyed it and I think you will too. So super excited to have you here. Happy 2023 and let's dive in. Remember the old diet advice like... When the urge to eat strikes, just take a walk or have a glass of water. Usually you're just thirsty, not hungry. If you're anything like me, these suggestions make you want to punch the magazine or the person who said it in the face. So many suggestions to just stop emotional eating are based in diet culture. They're based in the notion that you know what to do, just do it. And I'm here to tell you that changing behavior is hard. We as humans are wired for comfort and disrupting a pattern of emotional eating is challenging. And at the same time, you absolutely can do it and you can learn to prefer it. However, to get started with disrupting this pattern, we need to feel understood. We need to then take small consistent actions in the direction of our goals. So we're gonna leave these super patronizing suggestions at home and get some actual suggestions for simple, fun things to do when the urge to eat strikes when you know you are not hungry. So for some actual suggestions for this, I have a new free actionable guide. This is a one-page PDF you can pull up at any time with 23 things to do instead of eating, complete with links to videos, fun, inspiring songs, and many different ideas to disrupt the pattern and take a small step towards empowerment and towards that confident person that you deserve to be. So grab the guide absolutely free at drhondorp.com forward slash guide. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P forward slash guide to start ditching the shoulds and regaining confidence in yourself today. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for any form of professional advice. If you are struggling with how these specific topics fit for you, please make sure you seek out a professional to get that guidance. And if you are enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you could pull out your phone, go to Apple Podcast, and give me a quick review. You can either just give us the star review or you can write a review. There you can let me know what you're enjoying, what you'd like to see more of. It's a really simple way and a free way for you to let me know you're enjoying the podcast, help more people find it, and um, help keep the podcast going. So thank you so much in advance. All right, let's dive in. All right, so welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I have a very special guest and a really, really important topic today. So my guest today is Dr. Robin Pashby. Uh, Robin has been suggested to me to talk to for a long time and uh, by multiple people. And really, we just chatted briefly before hitting record, but is doing really, really important, innovative work Um similar to interests that I have in terms of having really sounds like really productive conversations within the fields of weight management, or we just had a conversation about the terms uh, obesity, obesity prevention and treatment, as well as weight inclusive, health at every size based worlds, also eating disorder world. So such important work really kind of at the intersection of interests that I have here on the podcast. So I'm really honored to to have you here, Robin. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and how you came to doing this work. So I think 
there's sort of the professional side of the story, which is a, a, just a deep interest in how the research worlds and the clinical worlds overlap in the management of this of this issue that affects so many Americans and people across the world. Um, and that's important and so forth. But my personal story behind it is that I have a long family history of of obesity. I have a personal history of obesity and struggling with my weight for much of my life into well into adulthood. And I believe that it's something that I work at every single day now. So I think the overlap of professional and personal interests got me where I am. Yeah, I love it. And a similar, different story, but similar in terms of the professional and the personal world. Um, it's, it's, I think, cool when we can bring that that real experience. And so I'd love to ask you, we were chatting a little bit before, but if you're good with it, I'd love to ask you a little bit, because we had talked about terminology on the podcast and how you use the term um, obesity or persons with obesity. So you, can mm-hmm. you tell a little bit about what that choice? Cause I know it's a really intentional choice. It is. So here's, so, I mean, talking way back in early graduate school, I think we were probably you were too. We were all taught that, Oh, obese is the word that you use to describe a BMI category essentially. But now more than 20 years into this, what I've really come to understand. And I think the science has obviously shaped that, but also thousands of clinical interactions with people is that using the word obesity helps to really identify a cluster of symptoms and syndromes and disease processes that are at work as a result of excess adipose tissue. So the BMI by itself is a terrible indicator of of disease status, of weight, you know, just the whole thing. But using the word obesity really does claim this as a medical condition. And I understand that people um, have reactions to that. And I understand that. I will just say that from my perspective, when I talk to my patients, I ask them, you know, what feels safer, more comfortable to you? Is it the word fat? Is it the word obesity? Is it none of the above? Is it living with a larger body? Any of anything that works for that person And by and large, the people that I work with are really working to understand how to manage this long-term chronic health condition. And I think saying like, I'm a person living with obesity in the same way you might say, I'm a person living with cancer, helps them identify that there's a real treatment path and that it's not a personal failing or a personal description. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, many of my patients and part of what we're going to talk about today have been so stigmatized and the word fat was used against them um, and is really traumatizing for people. Now, I understand that that works both ways, but I think that's why it's really important to have a conversation with people about what feels safest to them. Yeah, I love that. It's that individualized approach is so important and it is, it's, and that's exactly why I'm really excited to learn more from you today is because it's, there's just a lot of nuance to it. And the best yes. way is just to have that conversation with the person. And it, and it is, I just mentioned to you before we hit record that there, I was just putting together a talk and there was a, a research study that pulled people and what kind of terminology they like. And in that research study specifically, I'll have to go back and look at exactly what they asked people, but people just prefer the term weight. But like you said, that may miss that experience that they're really wanting to get described. If we're just saying this is your weight. And I think it was more when they go to doctors and things like that. But, um, but yeah, I think that's really, really important and really insightful. So appreciate you sharing that. Sure. Um, so we're going to talk today about um, internalized weight bias. This is a really important topic. So let's just start with def- some definitions. What sure. is weight bias? Weight bias is and this is not my definition, this is a well-established definition. I'm pulling the one from the Obesity Action Coalition, but weight bias is a set of negative attitudes, beliefs, judgments, stereotypes, and discriminatory acts aimed at individuals solely and simply because of their weight. It can be both overt or subtle, um, and it really can include verbal and emotional discrimination, 
So for example, teasing, insults, um, being made fun of both by peers and friends and family, but also by strangers, by healthcare providers, um, by employments in employment settings and so on. Um, But it also can include um, physical discrimination. So when individuals are physically um, assaulted or harassed because of their weight. Um, I've had more than one story than I care to know about people having things lobbed at them from car windows, um, you know, just horrible stories. Um, it also includes just day-to-day life barriers. And um, so, for example, going into a, a physician's office and not having a chair that accommodates a larger body or um, going into a public restroom and not being able to maneuver a body in there very um, easily, not having appropriate size medical equipment, blood pressure cuffs, MRI machines, patient gowns, um, and of course, denial of access to healthcare. So when treatments for obesity are not either available or are not reimbursed by health insurance plans, I think those are all examples. Um, That list that I just gave to you is from the Obesity Canada group. And that really is a an encompassing example of what weight bias is. Yeah, all very, very important to kind of distinguish. And a lot is, like you said, overt and very documented. And then there's the the covert experiences where people are like, I think I might be being treated differently here. I'm not sure. And that can actually just lead to a ton of more distress too, because it's self-doubt. Is this real? Is this something that I really, are my feelings valid? And that can be an incredibly distressing experience for people too. Well, I think, right. I mean, and the, it's, I think your point is so important. It's that it's not just the overt things, but it's also the less obvious ones. And, you know, the media are often a huge perpetuator of weight bias when they show images of, of big bellies and no heads or, um, you know, talk, do a story about obesity, um, of which I have been featured in and, the appropriate, the um, corresponding image is something that I would just never choose in a million years. And mm-hmm. so even just the sort of like themes of movies, right? Oh, the girl loses weight and then is happily ever after, right? These are sort of constant barrages of messages that living in a large body is not help, have healthy, happy, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's one of those experiences somewhat similar to people might talk about like diet culture as like, it's just everywhere and we're all breathing it. It's just right. like air. And we don't exactly. always consciously realize that we're breathing it. Exactly. And then your, your comment, I think led us a little bit into the internalized bias because internalized bias is then just self-directed stigma. Right. So this occurs when people with obesity essentially are, bombarded by instances of weight bias in stores, public transportation, workplaces, healthcare settings, families, friend circles with strangers at social events and so on, and basically begin to develop weight-based stereotypes that they then apply to themselves, right? So those things like, um, you know, what's wrong with me? Why, why can't I be in a smaller body or why can't I get myself under control? Those are all examples of devaluing oneself based solely on body weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another one I hear a lot is like, I know what to do. I'm just not doing it. And sort of the yes. assumption that like, I could easily change this thing and I'm not. So therefore I am enter right. self-derogatory term. Yes. Things. And you know, so people living with internalized weight bias may find themselves saying things like I'm unattractive or I'm lazy or I'm lacking willpower or I'm just greedy or I'm, um, you know, personally to blame for this issue. Um, Lacking self-discipline. I guess that's similar to willpower, but like I just have an issue with discipline. I've heard that a lot. Right. And I hear this from people that are like running companies and you know, have these other markers in their lives that would be huge markers of success, right? I mean, even just being really good friends or having, being a parent or taking care of a loved one or things, right? Major responsibilities in life. And yet, because their weight is higher than they 
think it quote unquote should be, they end up thinking that they're less deserving of success or of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I, I want to ask too, in terms of like internalized weight bias, it, it clearly is negative for someone with obesity and how does it impact other size bodies? So I think that's a really important question because I often remind my clients that weight, the impact of weight bias, the traumatic stress of experiencing weight bias, both external to you and internalized, doesn't go away with body size change, right? Mm-hmm. So if, for example, if someone has had bariatric surgery and lost a significant amount of weight or is on one of these, um, you know, GLP-1s or the new medications out that are really having dramatic impact on body weight for people, mm-hmm. people still live with the impact of the shame that comes from long-standing weight bias and internalized bias. Yeah. And that shows up across the board, right? Um, it shows up in how we take care of ourselves. It shows up in depression and anxiety, shows up um, in our interpersonal relationships and the quality of those relationships. Because if you enter a relationship feeling like you are not worthy of love, mm-hmm. there's pretty clear um, ramifications of that in terms of your ability to stay connected to people. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And I guess, and this is something I was, again, I was just putting together this presentation and thinking about this interview and some I have coming up and the other piece that strikes me and and the more I've done this work, like with the podcast, I've been thinking about like, I think it, it negatively impacts most people, even if they've never like been in a larger body size or a person with obesity too. Right. Like it's like, because it causes people to do things like when you have internalized bias, maybe because we know we live in a world that has social privilege with smaller bodies, like you might over control your daughter's food intake instead of your son's, for example, and cause actually all these issues that didn't need to be there. So I don't know. I just want to throw that in there too. I think it, it harms all of us. And I actually just personally have found like doing this work and being like, Oh wow, I'm even more free. I didn't even realize I was, needing to be more free, but I'm like, oh, I'm more free just in the past, like the conversations on this podcast, like I've freed myself up from even more judgment that I didn't even, I've mostly been pretty free from that for a couple of years, but I just want to throw that in there too. I think it harms all of us. It does. It does. And, you know, I think, remember that people who we meet on the street today in their particular body size that day doesn't mean anything about their body size a year ago or right? Or 10 years ago. So, and it doesn't mean that there's any assumptions we can make about the body size of their mom or their sister or any of these other things. So I think you're hundred percent right. It affects us whether we've lived in large bodies or not, and whether we have family history or not, but yeah. Yeah. So how um, would someone recognize if she, he, or they have internalized weight bias or maybe especially a more like it kind of is there probably to some extent for many of us, but like, how would they recognize if it's a really um, quite present for them? Yeah. So um, this is a really good question. And I, I was recently talking to a physician friend of mine, she's an endocrinologist. And I, and we, in the end of our discussion where we landed was that taking a trauma informed approach, because I really see experiencing weight bias and internalized weight bias as traumas, um, taking an in- trauma-informed approach to every interaction is required because whether or not someone is fully conscious of the fact that they're experiencing weight bias, to your point, he, she, they probably are to varying degrees, of course. Um, but so some things that we tend to see that are related to weight bias are um, lower self-esteem, uh, more negative body image, also depression and anxiety. Um, even things like um, harmful weight control practices, right? Some eating disordered behavior, um, as well as exercise avoidance, um, increased sedentary activity. So I think what I tell people is that if you feel held back from doing what you want to do to live the life you feel like living, whether that's working on your health by going to the gym or it's going for a walk in your neighborhood or playing badminton on the beach. I don't know, whatever it is. If you feel hindered by that, 
then it's probably a reflection reflection of experiencing weight bias and maybe internalizing some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, these sorts of things really affect people's um, mental health, obviously, but also physical health. So independent of weight, we know that people who have higher levels of internalized weight bias and weight bias experiences um, report more eating to cope. They report more avoidance of exercise. They report um, differences in how willing they are to engage in self-monitoring, which is sort of one of the behavioral fundamentals of weight management. Um, They also report higher levels of stress, um, lower eating-related self-efficacy, so a sense of like competency with their eating. Um, And this is after accounting for socioeconomic status and weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really, and I guess, and the other thing that I was just add, thinking as you were talking is even just any degree of like judgments about eating, categorizing food as that kind of falls into like the disordered, although that's not a behavior. It's like that internalized judgment yeah. if you show, and, and people may not really see the connection there, right? It might be like, well, that's, that's not weight bias. I'm just saying this food is unhealthy quote unquote, but really, right. or junk food. Right. But sometimes it's people are, it's this subtle way it shows up, but it does tie back to it most of the time, right? Like it's yes. because we're putting this moral value on food because we put this moral value on body size. You got it. You got it. Yeah. And, and we know that that, you know, those sorts of thoughts are a very common trigger or predisposition to engaging in binge eating and emotional eating. So we have this sort of self-perpetuating cycle, right? Where the, bias that they, that people experience, I've experienced it in myself, but becomes internalized. And then we end up being so down on ourselves that we turn to food to cope often, which is actually a very reasonable thing to do, right? I mean, food is pleasing and pleasurable and satisfying and comforting and all of those things. And then, but then people, because thin bodies are so valued and it seems like you're so in control if you have a thinner body then people feel out of control for eating right and like the spiral just continues yeah just exacerbates the the cycle Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I was just gonna say there's also um just some data that came out pretty recently that I think are really important because I think there's like a tendency sometimes to think of this as a as a um, you know, like a young Caucasian woman problem or um, people who have a lot of dieting history. So certainly like an American problem. And um, the research recently, um, Rebecca Poole and Gary Foster and others published it just last year in 2021 of more than 14,000 people and um, basically found that people reported experiencing weight stigma and engaging in all these things we've talked about in the following countries. Australia, Canada, France, Germany, the U- UK, and the US. So I think it's just really important to highlight that this is not just a, you know, young white American woman problem. This stratifies lots of countries, lots of cultures, lots of body shapes and sizes, lots of socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And you had sort of, in terms of like the ways that weight bias impacts us I think well you did already start to to reflect on some of that but can you expand on that like what are some of the ways that this is impacting people right now all over yeah so um so internalized weight bias is associated with disordered eating we know that Mm -hmm. um there also seems to be this basically like this sort of mediating role with this drive for thinness and the drive for thinness is a a way of seeing the world, a set of beliefs and a set of self-talk essentially that results in feeling not good enough unless we are thinner. Mm -hmm. And that whole set of situations experience with weight bias drive for thinness can show up as disordered eating, um, mostly binge eating, um, but other things as well. Mm-hmm. And then like you, like we talked about, right. It also affects physical activity engagement and healthcare seeking. Um, you know, if, if anyone has ever not gone to the doctor because they don't want to get on the scale, for example, or said to themselves, 
oh, I'll go to the doctor for a checkup after I've lost these 10 pounds or this 50 pounds or whatever number it is, then that's an example of weight bias at play. And, you know, rightfully so in some cases, because so often healthcare professionals aren't, I think people are getting a little better, but haven't historically been um, aware and sensitive of the, the traumatic stress that is caused by these momentary things. I mean, I have clients tell me all the time they remember the first time they were weighed at a pediatrician's office and got the talking to about their weight or the first time their mom brought them to a Weight Watchers meeting, um, you know, when they were 11 years old. And I'm not saying that Weight Watchers isn't a great program. For some people, it's excellent. Um, but the idea of being labeled as fat or labeled as a problem was what was so painful, being singled out. Right. Yeah. Like you said, it's, um, and, and thinking of it as that trauma experience, you, we hear that term a lot and some people are like, that's too big of a term, but it's like, well, we're really just talking about the painful experience, uh, and acknowledging that and making space for that instead of just saying, well, it's your fault because that exacerbates it. Mm -hmm. There's also, I mean, in, in some research, we're also finding that internalized weight bias is, um, people who have a, a experience with this are more likely to be at risk for heart disease and diabetes. Um, and that, you know, in, that is sort of independent of the, the body weight issue. So I think it's really important to note that the stress of carrying this with us, right, the cortisol that our bodies are flooded with every time we're feeling a um, microaggression around weight is not insignificant in our general health either. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, it's always upsetting to hear that, that data. And yet like it's, I think that um, can really hammer home the importance because yes. not that psychological symptoms and emotional well-being isn't incredibly important. Like if we had do, people do questionnaires and they're like, I'm more down, but there's something really tangible about like I mean, markers of, I know there's been research on like markers of inflammation and like, I, maybe it's just the scientist in me, but I'm like, that's like really tangible stuff. It's like, this is not in people's heads, certainly. And and it's a really real experience and it can make the very thing that people are told to do lose weight more challenging when we're flooded with cortisol and inflammation and, and also things that impact like blood sugar more negatively, right? The chronic stress mm-hmm. response, it's all these factors working against, against people. Yes. Yes. And it, you know, it's not just, um, the, the individual person that is experiencing this because of the world and their internal thoughts. It's also, there's a larger issue here at play where if a healthcare provider sees someone with obesity as less compliant or, um, or just spends less time with him or her or them, then, there's very, I mean, there are just numerous cases of of serious medical issues being overlooked or mistreated or mistaken. And so the quality of care becomes compromised as well. So you might be an individual who are, you know, or I might be an individual who's able to sort of understand the internalized weight bias and really work on that and show up to my doctor's appointment. But if my doctor's carrying weight bias implicitly or, or acknowledged, then he or she might not be taking the same care of me, right? And that's a huge issue. Yeah. I mean, that because there's nothing we can do about that as individuals, it seems. Right. Yeah. You end up having to be this immense self-advocate. And I'm sure you've heard some, I've heard some really upsetting stories about things getting missed. And then there's a lot of like anger and grief and sadness of, I went to the doctor, I talked about this multiple times and how am I just now learning about this, you know, diagnosis that I could have been treated for 10 years ago or this missed, missed opportunity to feel better so much sooner. I mean, there's so many examples of that. Yes. Now on the other side, I think the other thing that I also see is that some physicians just won't mention weight at all. um, Because, you know, there's also a pushback on asking about weight or talking to a patient about weight. And I think, you know, it's up for debate whether or not primary care physicians, for example, or internists should be doing any lifestyle counseling. I don't know. Do they have time? I don't know. There's all sorts of questions there. Do they have the training? Probably not. Um, But that's not a reflection of a bad doctor, right? But it is a system-wide issue of how do we 
respectfully approach a topic that could have real health outcomes and negative consequences for people um, because excess adipose tissue can be related to serious medical health and, um, and health outcomes. So how do we have a situation where on one hand, the doctor can't say the right thing or say nothing at all? There's sort of, there's gotta be a middle ground here somewhere. Yeah, definitely. I actually just had, it hasn't come out yet, but I had a conversation with a physician about that exact topic and she had ended up going into, um, functional medicine started at primary care, traditionally trained and went into functional medicine because she has more time to have these conversations. And she would very much agree with that, which is, you know, and a lot of times people want to have these conversations, but they want to have the conversations in a safe space and they don't know right. sometimes how to bring it up. And, and the phys- she kind of gave some insight too, and I'm sure this is not news to you, but just the training of medical providers is like, they just, weight is just viewed as a risk factor. And yet now they're being trained, like, be respectful and all these things. And they don't know how to navigate that middle ground of like, I don't, I don't know what to do anymore. And so it ends up also can be a disservice when it's not brought up because people feel sort of either stuck or unseen for their experience, going back to what you were saying. Um, And actually, yeah, it makes me think of many, many episodes ago, I had a, a doctor come on and that's, I think, one of the ways that she does such good work is helping people to see um, obesity as a disease and not shaming people for it. And like, how can we manage this? And so anyway, yes, yes. Which circles back to the beginning when I said the reason I use the word obesity is because I think once people understand that there's genetic and biological and neurochemical and behavioral and psychological and environmental and social um, and political reasons that they are struggling with this issue of excess adipose tissue, it sort of takes it out of the hands of the weight bias message, which is like, if you just had more willpower, you'd be fine, yeah. right? Everyone could be thin if they just ate less and moved more, um, yeah. which is obviously not true. <laughs> yeah, no, these are, these are great. This, that's why I love this podcast. It makes me think too of like, where can I continue to do better and have, um, because I just sort of, again, it's, I, I, sometimes I do have overt conversations, but I think I need to make it more of a, a generalized discussion that occurs every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can people, what can people do about the, with this information, right? Um, it's very important information. I think everyone can see the impact but someone's like, okay, great. I have this thing that is really negatively impacting me. Now what? Right. Right. So, I mean, just like any other thing we talk about, I think knowing actually does make a difference because especially with these insidious moments, it's like, I think I've read somewhere that if you buy a brand new red car, suddenly you see all the red cars on the street because you feel so special until you recognize like, oh, wait, it's all around me too. (laughs) (laughs) And this is not quite like that. But I think once you begin to see how much this is showing up in the world, you can't unsee it. At least that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really powerful for people because number one, it gives them a sense that, oh, wait, I'm not like there's not actually something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the system and the the way that this has been framed. But it also provides them, I think, a little bit of ground to start to do some of the work, right? Which is to educate other people, whether that's family members or friends or, um, you know, coworkers even about the complexity of this issue, mm-hmm. right? And to just not brush it off as like, oh, you know, when you're when your mom comes in and tells you, Hey, I started keto and I've lost a hundred pounds. And if you would only eat keto too, you'd be fine. Um, again, I'm not saying there's a problem with any particular program that people follow, but the idea that people are doing it because they feel like they're not acceptable as human beings as they are is a real problem. If we're talking about doing something from a health-based approach, that's a very different perspective. Um, so I think educating others is part of this idea of speaking up and being heard because bias, um, especially when it becomes internalized, really silences people, right? I mean, it, it activates shame. And as Brene Brown has told us over and over again, shame thrives in silence. So the more we speak up and make our... Um, 
our position understood by our healthcare providers at the very least. Um, th- I think that reduces the impact of weight discrimination in, in medical circumstances, at least. Um, and then, you know, there's some really tangible things, right? Um, working with a therapist, obviously, who knows about the intersection between bias and stigma and obesity and eating disorders and all of that, I think is good. I, I think you're a rare breed like me. We don't, you know, there's not a ton of us out there that do this work and, but that's fine. Um, there's also the option of the organization that I'm affiliated with, the Obesity Action Coalition. We actually have a place where it's a task force that can go out and, um, essentially advocate against things that we see, for example, in the media, right? If you see a headline with a, crappy picture attached to it, or you see a headline that should not read what it says, um, doesn't use person first language, then you can actually do something about that. You can report it. And we've been pretty successful in getting um, reputable places, um, news outlets and things to change photos and change headlines and things. So just chipping away piece by piece at these instances matters. Um, And then you know, I, I'm, I live in Washington, D.C., so I would believe in getting out there and talking to political members and and, you know, lobbying groups and other things and just talking to your state legislature, whatever it is that works for you to really speak up and get um, appropriate treatment for obesity covered by health care insurance and so forth. So those are some really tangible things as well. Yeah, that's I mean, it's you bring up an interesting question that I'd love to get your thoughts on, which is like some of the things that I've said with clients, my my thought is sort of like it, it's great when they're able to be self-advocates, but they shouldn't have to be like they shouldn't mm-hmm. like other people should have to do that. And I've always said, like, you don't have to be the educator for everyone, but you can be if it feels empowering. And like, yeah. I guess I my question is, it sounds like some people that you've worked with or even yourself have found it really empowering and how often do you find that that like need, not that it needs to be part of the healing journey, but um, I don't know. It makes me wonder, like, not that I should push people to be advocates, Mm-mm. but I think sometimes it naturally happens, right? Like they yes. just like become passionate about it. But um, how often do you think that that's part of the healing journey for people that you've seen? So there's different levels of it, right? Some people mm-hmm. I've worked with have gone on to become serious advocates and assuming, you know, positions in the world that that have influence in this domain, um, writing papers and things like that. In other cases, it's really, really small, right? It's saying to your 75-year-old father, when you go home for Thanksgiving break, dad, we're going to talk about my weight. So it can be something as small, even though look, I'm a therapist. I know that saying that sentence to your dad can take months of work. Um, But in comparison, right, we have the people that go on national news networks talking about it. And then we have people that have a one-on-one private conversation that lasts 10 seconds with a meaningful person. And I, in my opinion, all of those things count. They all matter. So I talk to people about advocacy in the way that it feels right for them, but not standing up for yourself in any way. Um, I think perpetuates some of the shame and blame that people have. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm always like, how did, cause I think assertiveness is something I'm working on in my life. So it's yeah. not pushing people <laughs> to be assertive, but, um, but yet encouraging them that they got, they got this, they can. And yeah. I know we do, I do that a lot with being weighed at visits and what they want at that point. And we do a lot of work around that, but yeah. Yes. Yes. Anything else you want to add in terms of what um, maybe, I guess, main main takeaways of what we're talking about or what, what else you'd encourage people to do or consider when it comes to kind of healing from internalized weight bias? Yeah. So I think in a, in a nutshell, I would say that I, I think that almost all of us experience some weight bias or internalized weight bias independent of our body weight. And so people living in larger bodies to a greater extent. Um, and so if that describes you, I encourage people to take a look inside and see where the pain points are. Um, is it that, you know, you're embarrassed to go grocery shopping because you're worried that people are judging what's in your cart? Um, anything like that, that's a moment to really reflect on and figure out 
why, what's happening. And, and reflecting with a trained therapist is a great place to do that. Um, but I think basically it matters, right? All of these things matter in terms of people's general well-being and um, mental health. And so I hope that we can help people both feel empowered to speak up for themselves, but more importantly, to live the life that he or she they want to live, which most of the time is a life that's healthy, right? I mean, most people really enjoy moving their bodies in a way that feels good to them. I don't mean like going and burning out at a hit class for everyone, but doing something that feels good to them, um, engaging with food in a way that feels good to them. Like that, I think that's the goal. If we can, if we can help people reduce the bias enough so that they can lead the life he or she wants to live, then we're making progress. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, I think the thing that I'll just add is like meeting people like you and just the more that I do this work, the more I'm kind of connected with people that are, I, 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 I sounds like similar to you. I've seen that polarization I've talked about on the podcast where we just have these like two extremes and, and like, we all kind of have similar goals for yes. people. Like we all just like want people to feel good. And, yeah. and yet like we accidentally can move away from that when we're too polarized or too shaming of, um, this is a complex experience. I mean, there's a lot of commonalities that people can identify and, and relate to and bodies eating and weight are, there's just, it's a very individualized experience. And I think it's, it's cool to see for me that there's more and more people having these conversations and maybe they always have been, and maybe I'm just finding them now, but um, I don't know. I think I would like to think that there's more productive conversations happening around. It doesn't have to be just intuitive eating health at every size, never talk about weight loss. And it doesn't have to be diet culture, rigidity, calorie counting. Um, it can be, there's a lot of in between. And so at least for me, that feels, um, very positive. Cause I know there's a lot of people that want the in between. Yes. Yes, indeed. Cool. So we'll move on to our questions that we always do at the end here. Um, the first one is what is one thing you truly have intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction of the behavior itself. So um, I thought about this one and because I work in the area of eating and weight, um, I'm always a little hesitant to share this, but really honestly, movement um, is something that I started because I didn't like my body. Um, and I thought I ended up going to a college um, that was full of, well, it seemed like anyway, really fit, athletic, um, wealthy people. And I was none of those. And um, it sort of hit me in the face. And I went through a really hard period. And I found exercise for the reason of trying to change my body. But what ended up actually happening was that I changed my mind. Mm -hmm. And um, I have not ever walked away from it in 26 years or something like that since. Um, and I alternate through what I do, but um, right now I'm loving walking my dog and yoga. Um, other times I've loved spin classes. Other times I've loved weightlifting. Other times I've loved Pilates. Other times I've tried whatever you can throw at me. I, I like it all. Nice. No, I appreciate sharing that experience because it's more directly relevant to our topics. And also it sounds like and that's what we know about like motivation types is that it might, st it didn't start out as intrinsic. It was very wrapped up in probably internalized weight bias and yes. um, attempts to control your body size. And, yeah. and it's, and sometimes that external motivation leads to fits and starts of motivation, but it sounds like for you, it was actually able to transition into intrinsic and actually was able to do it consistently long-term, but probably partly because it transitioned eventually to intrinsic. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I've really internalized the idea that this exercise is for my mental health and my mental well-being, mm -hmm. And that's really a value I hold strongly. So nice. Sounds good. And then the next question is from a should to a choose to. So something that um, was always a should for you, you used to struggle to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you value it or it's part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Hmm. Um, I guess I would say um, <laughs> reaching out to friends. Hmm. I'm very inherently extroverted and social, but I think I 
kind of go through periods of time where I get, you know, caught up in my work or other things. And I would should myself like, Oh, I should really text a friend or I should really call my girlfriend or whatever. Um, because I really value my connections and, um, I just really changed that. Like, I think honestly, the pandemic really helped that just sort of wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These, these people matter to me more than anything. And so now I make it, it's really just a choice. Like I, I get to do this. I get to talk to people I love and other people aren't so lucky. So I value that. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like there's some intrinsic like motivation there, but it becomes like, it's, it's more of an intentional, like conscious choosing of like this. Mm-hmm. I know I like this. I know I will feel good. Even if for whatever reason, like work can be really compelling when you love what you do. And so yes. you're like, I don't have time. And then you're like, you do have time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And yes. it's the choice to let go of, well, I don't have an hour to talk, so I'll yes. just call tomorrow. Right. right. And deciding yeah. that something is better than nothing. Yes. Yeah. I have a friend that I do that with. We're like five minutes here. Okay. We'll, we'll just start right here. Next time I talk to you in three weeks. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It works. Not all or nothing. Love it. Um, And then our courage and connection question. So a main part of our mission here is teaching people to reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous, connected lives. Can you share any examples of building courage or connection in your life that you're proud of? Sure. Um, About, I guess, six or seven years ago, I decided to open my own um, practice, my own group practice. And well, it started out as a solo private practice, just me. And, um, about six or eight months into that, I realized that I had more in me and taking that first leap was big enough, but then deciding to expand it a little bit and have some members of the team to join me and hire people and suddenly become a business person was a huge leap for me. And, um, something that I'm so proud of. And I work really hard at having this practice that I think reflects my core values of, of respect and safety and non-judgment and evidence-based science provided with a relational frame. So I feel really proud of myself for doing that. Yes, absolutely. As you should. It's a lot of work to have a business, it is. <laughs> business owner as I am Continuing to learn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And along that line, where can people learn more about the work that you're doing, what you have to offer and to connect with you? And maybe you can even comment on um, what work you're able to do in certain areas since we have listeners from all over. Yeah, sure. So um, my website is um, just www.dchealthpsychology.com. So DC as in Washington, DC. And um, so that's where people can always find me, but I'm on social media as well at Robin Pashby PhD on Twitter and so forth. Um, I am licensed in with SIPACT or approved through SIPACT, which means I can practice across, I think it's 30 states now. Um, Something fast. (laughs) Okay. But I'm also independently um, approved to do um, therapy in Florida licensed in New York, also about to get approval in Hawaii and South Carolina. So I have a massive um, (laughs) reach. That said, um, one of my favorite side gigs that we didn't even talk about is that I'm launching another program with my colleague, Kelly Donahue, and we're called The Modern Psychologist. And we're creating a whole set of, of courses and other things that people can access to learn the tools that I have, because I just simply, my caseload has been full for so long and I really want to share that. So that website is um, modernpsychologists.com. That's plural, modernpsychologists.com. And that's where people can find me if they want to do the other side of the housework. Cool. Well, yeah, we can link all of that. And um, I've, I've checked out your websites, but I will be checking it out again after our conversation. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been fun as I knew it would be and um, appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I hope people learn something. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from my mom's podcast. Make something from my mom's podcast, please. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. 
despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.